Welcome to a special episode of Business Books and Company. You know, in most episodes, we discuss a business book that the three of us have read. However, given the unprecedented effects on the business community that the coronavirus crisis is having, we decided to have a special episode. Note that the three of us are not public health experts, we're not doctors, we're not epidemiologists. Nothing that we discuss should be construed as medical advice. We are instead taking on this episode from the perspective of well-informed citizens. We'll be discussing more about the business side, the societal impacts, the economic aspects of the crisis uh, than we will the medical side. And I'll know all three of us actually have economics degrees. So people are into experts these days. I won't call us economics experts, but we have some background in that. Okay. um, Before we get into the coronavirus itself, let's introduce ourselves. Uh, My name is Molson Hart. I usually introduce myself as an entrepreneur, but this time maybe I'll try to introduce myself as someone who knows something about the coronavirus. Um, I spent two years living in China. I can read and uh, type Chinese pretty well. That like, helps me uh, understand the situation a little bit better. I'm a big fan of uh, understanding tail risks. And uh, like Kopech said, uh, I was an economics major and also a, a math major in college, which uh, means <laughs> I know what an exponent is. And I'm David Short. I'm a former product manager and consultant and... I wouldn't say I'm an expert on coronavirus, but given that I got laid off a couple of weeks ago, I have had a lot of time <laughs> to read a lot on the topic and to have actually started buying some supplies back in January, honestly, probably mostly based off of what I was hearing from Molson. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. I also have a degree in economics. And so I, I do think I understand the basics of math. And uh, thanks to Molson, who's really been a hawk on this topic since since January, maybe even December, he's been talking about it nonstop to the two of us and just in general to anyone who would listen. So I really appreciate that because he got me to prepare uh, and do some stockpiling before everyone went crazy and did unnecessary stockpiling and then hurt the system. So thanks, Molson. Okay. Um, before we get into different aspects of this crisis, let's talk about how the virus has affected each of us personally. So Molson, David, how has this affected your life? What are you doing right now? Where are you right now? How are you handling the crisis? I'm in Austin, Texas, which feels like a pretty good place to uh, weather this storm. And I spent like probably two hours every day reading about it. Uh, one hour in the morning, one hour at night. And it occupies a tremendous amount of my thinking, a tremendous amount of my time. This is probably, this at this point, this is probably the most significant event of ne- of the lives, lives of 99.999% of the people who are alive today. I mean, unless you were alive during like the Holocaust or Pearl Harbor, um, this is the most significant moment of your life. And so... I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it, what it means, what's going to happen over the next couple of months, what it means for my business, what it means for my family, all that. And I am currently in Astoria, New York, but I actually have to travel back to Boston to move, which is a confusing and complicated thing that I'm sort of deciding, do I just abandon all my stuff? And, you know, I probably won't do that, but it's, you know, it's a tough decision right now. And I've been up in Burlington, Vermont, and listeners might notice I have a slightly sore throat. I actually have some mild cold-like symptoms, maybe a little more than mild. And so I'm actually in self-quarantine in my house. Um, And my wife is pregnant, so I'm actually social distancing from my wife. Uh, And we're very fortunate that both of our employers 
are allowing us to work from home for the next couple months. So we really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I'm actually here in self-quarantine right now for the next uh, at least another 11 days. How did you first hear about the coronavirus? Like, w- when did this first come into your consciousness? And probably, Molson, you were probably the first. So maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, I think I would say Twitter is probably the way that I first started to hear about it. I think um, there was a really intense VC tech Twitter interest. And I think probably I actually heard about it from Molson first. And then I started to see the sort of chatter on VC Twitter, you know, Balaji and whatnot, who have been publicly speaking out about the potential problems. And there were, you know, a number of news organizations that tended to discount their qualifications to speak on the subject. I believe he actually does have, you know, some PhD in biology or something like that. So he's not, you know, an actual epidemiologist or whatever, but he did actually have a little bit more credentials than you might expect of the average venture capitalist. But yeah, I think I think it was Twitter and and honestly like sort of the the venture capital Silicon Valley bubble Twitter buzz about coronavirus where I really heard about it first. I just looked it up. My my first tweets were uh in like mid to late January. Um mm. and it was back then it was just like a couple of hundred cases in Hubei, but just by looking at the rate at which it was growing and knowing for the potential of how these things can grow exponentially and also um, seeing the actions that were being taken in China, that to me was a massive red flag in terms of how significant of a problem uh, that is. And uh, it was at the time. And uh, what am I trying to say there? So in China, uh, you can't really trust government statistics. So your best data point is just kind of looking at what actions are being taken. So if they say there are 200 cases, but they're quarantining entire cities or provinces, then uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're basically right to assume that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases or something like that. Um, basically, don't uh, ignore what people say, watch what they do. Yeah. yeah and, and just I, to give a little bit of clarity on the reason to distrust Chinese statistics, uh, SARS was a coronavirus that hit in, I believe, 2002 in Guangdong, and the Chinese government completely covered it up. They did not give information to other experts. It wasn't until, I think it was in uh, Vietnam, actually, that a WHO clinician happened to be there and, you know, started to see the impact and reported it out to the WHO. And, you know, China ultimately apologized to the WHO about it. But there's certainly a history in the past of, you know, inaccurate information coming from the Chinese government on health crises. Really strong incentive to cover this up politically, economically. And I think if we ever know the truth on this, I think we'll, we'll see. I mean, this is speculation that China effectively covered this up. I mean, it seems like every country is in one way or another. Now, we're, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, we're not health experts, not doctors. Um, so nothing that we say should be construed as medical advice. But let's talk a little bit about some of the medical aspects of, of this disease, just to get information out there to listeners who probably have seen it a million times. But, you know, if we catch even one person does you know is not aware of some of these things, let's get that information out to them. So how is this different from the flu? Uh, in terms of how much it spreads, in terms of how dangerous it is to people, and what can people do to kind of avoid getting it? All right, so I'll take a stab at that. Um, I'm doing this from memory here. So how how is it different from the flu? Uh, It's my understanding that the way the flu kills you is that you start out with a viral infection, which then becomes bacterial, 
or maybe even fungal pneumonia. COVID-19 starts out as a viral infection and stays as a viral infection. We don't really have good mortality statistics on COVID-19 versus your average flu. Remember that the flu comes around every year and every year. I think it's a it's basically a, a different type of virus. Um, but it seems like COVID-19 is five to 10 times as uh, as deadly as the flu. I think the flu kills what, one in a thousand people. So it's got a mortality rate of uh, 0.1%. COVID-19, uh, it depends on like the median age of the, the country in which you're in, but seems to be around 1% and uh, a 1% fatality rate. Um, and I, I kind of got that number from looking at the Diamond Princess, was that, which was that crazy cruise ship that uh, kind of got isolated in Yokohama, Japan with all those cases. Um, seven people died and there were 693 cases. You have a dry cough instead of a cough with like lots of fluid in it. Uh, that And the hallmark is like a fever that doesn't really go down. Uh, that's 98% of cases based on Chinese data had a high fever. You get aches, with myalgia, um, and fatigue. Um, but so one of the most the significant things in terms of how they're different that I haven't yet mentioned is that you, so this R not thing, it's uh, how many people you're likely to infect if you were to contract the, the disease. It's, it's a moving target. So the R not uh, goes down if you practice social distancing, it goes up if you don't. And uh, basically the coronavirus is maybe not inherently more infectious than the flu, but is in practice more infectious than the flu because we have no herd immunity. So said another way, because so because this is a new virus, no one has, has had it before. If you are around 10 people and none of them have the virus, they don't have antibodies to fight this virus, all 10 of them will get infected. Whereas if you bring the flu to 10 people, there's a good chance that other people have already had it and they've, you know, they got it last year or something like that. So the coronavirus is is not only more deadly or deadlier, but also more infectious than the flu. And when you put those two things together, plus the, the exponential uh, means of transfer, you, you get to a very hairy situation when combined with, with uh, like linear capacity hospitals. Molson, one question I have is just around super spreaders. I know that SARS and MERS had cases where, you know, one person had infected 60, 100 people. And so it kind of like made the R not almost not very helpful because some people weren't very infectious. Some people were super, super infectious. Has there been any information about that on uh, the novel coronavirus? Yes, because I think the coronavirus grew so big so fast, we like stopped focusing on super spreaders. Whereas it, it, with the SARS epidemic, uh, we're like, all right, who's, you know, and obviously SARS happened 17 years ago. So we've had some time to figure out like how these clusters came about. Um, but yeah, I did, but only one story. As far as I can remember, there was that, that British guy who contracted it in Singapore. And then after he left Singapore, he went to some sort of convention. He got infected there, maybe infected a few other people in there, something like that. Then he flew to France where he was hanging out with some other family and he infected everyone who stayed in that, his like a skiing chalet in France. And then he went to, uh, he went back to the United Kingdom, went to a pub, he infected a few people there. And so he's as close as we can get to a uh, super spreader 
Um, as, as, there was also a guy in Cadogno, Italy, apparently, who just spread it around. But I, I think it's too early for us to identify who the super spreaders were. You know, who was the first guy at that uh, Korean church who infected all sorts of people? We don't really know yet. And, um, you know, because it's so widespread, I don't think we're focusing on like single cases anymore. We're just trying to mitigate the problem overall. There is one other. There's the guy in Westchester County who went, mm. worked at a law firm. He spread it to people in his law firm. He spread it to people at his temple. He spread it to other people in Westchester and his family. Now, I do want to say, you know, I feel really bad for the super spreaders because they didn't know that they were super spreaders. I, I assume that obviously that most of them, they did not do this intentionally and they probably feel pretty guilty about it. And if I were them, honestly, I would not, I would hope that, you know, they could come to a point where they don't feel guilty because, they didn't know what they were doing. So there's this, you know, real like demonization a little bit sometimes in the media of these super spreaders, but they didn't necessarily know they were being super spreaders. And so, you know, I hope that, I hope they can go on. It wasn't their fault, you know. Well, uh, the flip side of that is I would say that if you are sick today and you are not practicing social distancing and if you're like not a complete idiot, you should feel pretty bad about yourself because you're doing enormous harm to not only yourself, but society and and the people around you, but society at large. Like if you feel sick or even if you don't feel sick at this point, like you really have a, have a pretty strong responsibility to just engage in social distancing. This is crazy. Yeah. And we, we have a lot of younger people listen to our show. So our average demographic is 25 to 34, which is a demographic that statistics show from early studies out of China is not super at risk in terms of having high lethality. Um, on the other hand, you could be a vector spreading it to an older person, spreading it to somebody with a pre-existing condition, uh, and you have a responsibility to stay home. Uh, and I, that, you know, if, if, at the end of this medical little segment here, if we can just have one message that goes out, it's stay home if you can. If you can work from home, work from home. If you are sick, you must stay home. You have an absolute societal responsibility to stay home and not interact with other people. But even if you're not sick, um, over the next few weeks, the more of us that stay home, the more we're going to be able to limit the amount that this virus spreads. And I want to point everyone also to coronavirus.gov, where you can get the latest information from the CDC about all the medical topics that we were just mentioning. And again, we're not medical experts. Do not take anything we say as medical advice, but that that certainly is an appropriate place to get medical advice. Okay. So I think one final so thing I, I would suggest before we move off of the medical thing, and Molson, if you have something as well, feel free, but is just that we don't know what the long-term impact of this disease is. So just because people between 25 and 34 are not dying at high rates, SARS and MERS both have had extremely negative impacts on people's health for long periods of time, even if they weren't actually deadly to those people. You know, the ability to actually, you know, lead a healthy life when your lungs are compromised by a coronavirus has historically been quite difficult. So just because younger people aren't dying does not mean this is something that they can, you know, not worry about, even beyond, even if they are completely selfish and are not worried about the impact they're going to have on, you know, the rest of the community. Yeah, uh, I've heard damage to your lungs. I, I read a Chinese news article from their like national paper, the Global Times, saying that it resulted in male infertility. It's quite serious. Um, I'm going to take a standpoint that it's my personal standpoint. It's not the other two Davids. Um, I wouldn't listen to the CDC. Uh, I'm not a doctor or whatever. Sue me. I don't care. I just they up until this point, they've been doing a terrible job. 
uh, managing this and managing the information and telling people what to do. I'm not really sure if there's a good source of information out there. I like there's this guy named M. Lipschitz uh, on Twitter. He's like the head of the Chan School of Epidemi. I don't know how to say that word. Uh, <laughs> so there, there's a guy, he's the head of Harvard's uh, infectious disease spreading program. He, he knows what he's talking about as far as I can tell. And there's some good sources out there. Just, you know, read up on the Internet, see what other countries are doing. Check out what China's doing. Check out what South Korea is doing. But uh, up to this point, I, I I can't in good faith recommend following the CDC's advice because they have just been doing an absolutely terrible job. And it is totally embarrassing as an American to see that. For liability purposes for the three of us, I'm going to say do listen to the CDC and go to coronavirus.gov. Uh, we are, Molson is not a doctor. He is not a public health expert. Take his advice with a grain of salt. Okay, uh, certainly consider it. I'm not saying you shouldn't consider it, but please take it with a grain of salt. Okay, um, what have we learned from other countries? Though you brought up China, you brought up South Korea. What have they been doing that's been effective, uh, and how has this impacted their economy and their society? And do we know yet how it's impacted their economy and their society? Well, society, we're still trying to figure that out. And it's pretty challenging to get a pretty good understanding of what's happening to China society because there's a, you know, there's control of information there, censorship, and then there's a very strong language barrier um, that I even struggle to surmount from time to time. Economically, uh, yeah, there's been huge disruptions to China that are now loosening up both for factories and so the supply side of their economy and then also the uh, services side of their economy was your question what are other countries doing in order to tackle this yeah you're you're very in touch with what's been going on in china and south korea and what are they doing economically too because we're going to later on get into what we're doing economically so basically the the things that they're doing to tackle this is they are doing contact tracing which means that they're Trying to, if you have few cases in your country, or if you think you have few cases in your country, you don't want to shut down everything. So you want to find the one person, the super spreader, and you want to figure out who that person has been in contact with and where they have been for every hour of the last seven days. So you can find other people who potentially are carrying the illness who may be spreading it asymptomatically. Um, another thing that these countries have been doing that we haven't been doing is is testing as many people as possible. Um, testing as many people as possible is important because if someone tests positive, then you need to isolate that person so they don't spread the illness to more people. And uh, one thing that China has been doing is they don't just you know test you once and then move on. They give you a CAT scan. They test you once, they test you twice, they test you multiple times because they need to be absolutely certain before they kind of let you go, live your, your 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 life in quarantine, before they let you do that, they need to be 100% sure that you're not going to spread it to more people. Um, and then the last thing, and, and basically the number one thing, is that the you know countries are basically doing what's called social distancing. So they are saying, hey, you, you can't leave your apartment, you can't leave your home. Uh, if you, you know, if you have to go to work, you're going to go to work, you're, you're going to wear a mask. Um, if you don't have to go to work because, you know, you don't operate the power plant or do something really important in that way, you can, you're forced to work from home. Um, and 
basically massive amounts of testing, um, contact tracing, and quarantines have seen quite credibly, even though I don't believe the numbers coming out of China, a significant decrease in the number of new infections, which is so important because if if our hospitals get overwhelmed, um, not only are more people going to die from shortage of ventilators and, you know, less attention from doctors, but if someone gets in a car accident, they're more likely to die because the hospital is overwhelmed with everything else that's going on because they're inundated with COVID-19 patients. It's also not just that, but people are now afraid of hospitals because of the disease spread. And so, you know, people that have maybe a heart attack might not even go in because they're afraid, oh, I'm going to catch this disease. So it's it's a, I mean, it's it, that's the sort of nefarious part of what we're doing, which is, you know, spreading important information. But at the same time, it does lead to fear where people don't seek medical attention for other things that they they may need. And that, you know, in, in uh, the, you know, uh, Spanish flu and whatnot, there were lots of increases in mortality on other death, uh, other, you know, ailments like and illnesses war. because people are just afraid. <laughs> Gunshots went up in 1918. <laughs> Well, I, I think you have to weigh the pros and cons, right? So if my wife who's pregnant has some kind of issue with her pregnancy, we're still going to go in, right? If you have a heart attack, you should still be going in, right? But if you have a little bit of stomach pain, okay, maybe now's not the best time to be going to the hospital, right? If you have a if you have a cut that I'm not that worried about, maybe you shouldn't be running to your doctor about it, right? Um, we need to keep the healthcare system as not under pressure as possible. You also don't really have much upside to going to the hospital unless you're really, 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 really sick with COVID-19 if you suspect you have COVID-19 because we don't have therapies that will cure you necessarily. I mean, you know, uh, at, at this point, any kind of therapy that is used as a hospital is mostly speculative. On the other hand, if you're having trouble breathing, if you're having... Um extreme symptoms, you should go to the hospital, right? Let's let's be very clear. We don't want people avoiding the hospital because they think they can't be helped at all. Of course, they can help you. But if you have mild symptoms, you shouldn't be overburdening the system. Yeah. There's a reason we're worried about ventilators getting overly used. They are helpful. They do help people. It's just mm -hmm. not going to cure your disease. Yeah. Let's talk. So that's what China and South Korea are doing. What have we done so far in the United States? What's our government's response been like? How do you feel about the government's response? I mean, I, I'm blown away by, I don't know, the the incompetence or maybe maybe it's intentional. It's so bad. I mean, it, it just like blows my mind that we have done so little. I mean, we're today is March 14th, maybe March 15th. I mean, we're starting to see uh, some curfews. There was some really haphazard self-isolation of people who were thought to be positive at the beginning, but so many reports. I mean, I don't even think it's worth bringing up the individual instances of incompetence. There are so many letting people in from countries who are obviously like have high rates of infection, like Italy, not screening those people. And now that we are screening people, the lines at customs are so long that we're bunching people up together. So we're spreading the disease, not testing, not only not testing, but banning the CDC preventing individual hospitals from doing testings when they could have been doing testing. It, it just blows my mind. There's like a never ending list 
of uh, errors our country has made in managing this. And we're really going to pay for it in one to two weeks. I also want to blame the media a little bit. So the media, for once, has a story they should have been hyping forever, and they weren't hyping it enough. And they were actually—they're going way too much by number of reported cases, right? So if we're not testing anybody, which we're—we are testing some people, but we're not testing most people. In fact, I know some personal stories up here in Vermont of people who clearly had symptoms that, if we had enough tests, we would have tested, right? But but we're turned away by by the hospital here. If we're not testing a lot of people who are sick, obviously there's a lot more people who have the sickness than the number of reported cases. So those estimates can be all over the place. I've seen some really, really large ones. But if you have five cases or eight, we currently have eight cases in Vermont, right? More likely you have hundreds or thousands of cases throughout your state and that you should be super, super cautious, but you're not being that cautious because you're like, wow, we only have eight cases, right? So I think the media is doing a huge disservice by not explaining that basic element of the story that because we're not, they should be all the time saying, hey, we haven't been testing that much. So actually there's a ton of cases out there and you should be super careful. But instead they're always just talking about the big number. Like what's the number of, of positive cases? I agree that the media has not been doing a good job, but the media is the media, right? Like they're, they're not like trained in this type of thing. So I, I, as bad of a job as the media in general has been doing, because some outlets have been doing a good job, the, the magnitude of their failure pales in comparison to what our own government has failed to do. Yeah, I just want to focus on the testing um, one more time. Molson talked about it quite a bit, but that's my real concern about the government response was that we stopped. We One, we didn't use the WHO test. We decided we were going to go our own way. Two, we developed a test that either didn't work or at least, you know, uh, other uh, clinics were unable to effectively execute. And three, we did not allow private organizations to try and develop their own tests for a significant period of time. Now, recently, we've relaxed a lot of those restrictions, but it's been an incredible boondoggle. And honestly, just watching Donald Trump lie repeatedly about how anyone who wants to get tested can was so frustrating and angering. And I really can't remember another case of anything remotely like this. It's just incredibly upsetting. And just to make it a little bit clearer, in Massachusetts, there are, as of, uh, you know, us speaking now on March 15th, 164 confirmed cases of coronavirus, but we've only tested like 800 people. So, you know, almost a quarter of the people who've been tested have been found positive. My guess is that that's not an accurate reflection. You know, I don't think a quarter of America has, has this uh, virus right now. Right, but they're but only I testing severe people. And, sorry to interrupt, David, but they're only testing people who were in the hospital to begin with, so or or severe enough to be going to the hospital, right? So, yeah. so that's a quarter of, of people who had pretty significant symptoms that were testing positive, right? So, the, so we're not even I getting... Was, I was sick a few weeks ago and in Massachusetts. I did not go in until I'd had extreme, you know, side pain for for a long time, and and my my cough had actually mostly subsided. But I went in. I told them that you know I had been coughing, you know, had experienced a fever, although I didn't actually have a thermometer, but you know, felt feverish, and that I had had dinner with a family who had returned from Hong Kong recently and were sick. They did not test me for anything, actually, not even the flu or strep, because I had started to recover from my cough. 
they did put a mask on me. So, you know, they, they, they helped a little bit, but it was really incompetent even when people were presenting. And a lot of the time it wasn't even, do you have all these symptoms? It's you had to have that plus you knew someone who had already tested positive for coronavirus and we weren't testing anyone. So it's, I mean, it was just completely incompetent. Well, I, I have my own anecdote. So just a few days ago, uh, we had a we have a person here in in Burlington uh, who I know who uh, and he was came from Westchester, okay, and he had a severe fever. He had he was ca- coughing a little bit, and he you know the classic signs, right? And they refused to test him here in Vermont because he hadn't yet come in contact. There was no reported contact with another person who had tested positive, and. How or any on travel to one of the places they were still going by that criteria again. We're on March fifteenth. That was just three days ago. Just three days ago, they were still going by that absurd criteria. How can you have come in contact with someone else who tested positive when you're hardly testing anybody, right? So yeah, I mean the the medical system has not reacted quickly enough, and the the guidelines they were following the guidelines. Now their, their hands were a little tied, right? They couldn't test people. Probably in your case in Massachusetts. And in this case in Vermont, if it didn't meet the federal guidelines for who should be tested, right? Um, but now that's changing, like you said. I think I was actually before there even was an approved test. So that's probably the reality on my end. But that's because we didn't accept the WHO. But they should have tested you for the flu because, and this person too, right? This person up here, you can easily rule out that they have the coronavirus by testing them for the flu. 100%. Anyway. Okay, so we, we're not thrilled with, with the testing situation in the United States and how the government's been rolling out the tests. It, it does seem like that's starting to turn around as of now, thank goodness. What do you think about the public-private partnership to now get testing out there? I haven't given it much thought, so I don't have a strong opinion on it, but I do think that it's a pretty good idea. If, if we're going to do something that has an online component, right, and I believe that the testing does have an online component because the CDC still doesn't want us to test everyone. You still have to like kind of like fill out a form and say, all right, I was either exposed to this type of person or I have these type of symptoms. Yeah, we absolutely want to outsource that to a company like Google. Uh, China's government does that kind of stuff all the time. They outsource like the train ticket purchasing system to Alibaba. And uh, the U.S. government has like a terrible track record when it comes to like building out websites, think like healthcare.gov. So I think it makes a ton of sense um, for this to be out, kind of outsourced uh, to a company like Google. And then, yeah, I, I think that it is clearly a better idea for us to be doing a public-private partnership than just a public operation when we were doing a 100% public operation before and it was leading to uh, objectively terrible results. But perhaps, and I suspect this is what David Shore is going to say, like, hey, maybe the, <laughs> maybe we should just let the, the, the like the large pharmaceutical and testing companies just figure this, this stuff out and it shouldn't be a public-private partnership. They should just kind of deregulate testing and, and let Pfizer and Roche and these companies want to develop tests, let them and let the let the let the public sort out, um, you know, what tests they want to buy or whatever. So with medical testing, that's one area where I mean, I tend to be very libertarian and, you know, even anarchist to a significant extent. I can see some level of government control in many instances making sense. I think in a crisis like this, people should be able to trust the companies that they want to. So like if, you know, Joe Blow, who I've never heard of, has developed some new coronavirus test, I'm not going to take that. But if Roche has, 
I am like there are plenty of large corporations that I trust much more so with this than the government, especially given what we've seen. And I think the real problem on the government end is fragmentation and a lack of leadership. The fact that we've changed who's in charge of this like five times in the last six weeks is not a good thing. The fact that the FDA and the CDC have been at loggerheads on when and if things are being approved is a huge problem. That is what the White House should have been controlling. There should have been one clear leader. It should not be the vice president. It should be someone with the ability to focus exclusively on this one thing, and they should be the one who's in charge. And it shouldn't be unclear as to whether the vice president or, um, you know, Dr. Fauci or the, you know, other heads of various different organizations are the ones who are in charge. I think that's the real problem. There should be, you know, government leadership on this. I think, you know, medical crises is one of the few things where we do need to mobilize the nation around it. And the government is important to take action here, but absolutely let the private organizations test. If you find out that they're bad, sure, you can shut them down or you can put them in jail or whatever. But, you know, don't say no one can do anything outside of these ridiculous CDC mandates about how you need to have traveled to China or have been in contact with someone who's tested positive for coronavirus when we've only tested a couple thousand people. Well, to be fair, when they had a limited number of tests, they did have to ration them to the people who were most in need of the tests. And so having some criteria in place while they had a limited number of tests made sense. But I agree with you that they should have opened it up to the private sector much sooner so that all of us could go to whatever testing company we want to and get a test. Now that they're finally doing that, I'm kind of actually optimistic about the the thing they're putting in place, which I don't know if you've heard about the last couple of days, where we're going to be able to drive to a Walmart, to a Target a Walgreens, a CVS, supposedly. Those are the four companies working with the government. We're going to be able to go to a drive through testing center at one of those locations that will then be sent off to a Roche machine or, or Quest or something like that. Um, that, is being, that is a true public-private partnership where the, the government is kind of organizing it and these private companies are allowing them to use their parking lots. Uh, so I, I think that's something that gives me a little hope that maybe the government response is turning around by leveraging the assets of the private sector and kind of mobilizing the private sector. So I'm cautiously optimistic about that. Definitely agree. We're in a better position now than we were a week ago in terms of the ability to actually start getting testing done and to know where we really are. I think the public-private partnership is a you know better direction than where we were before. I think things are getting a little bit better, but I'm still you know highly skeptical given the seeming incapability of Trump to not just like lie and say whatever pops into his head every time someone comes in. And ultimately, he is in charge and he keeps firing people for saying things that they disagree, that he disagrees with, including on this topic. So. Or I guess he didn't actually fire the woman, but he, you know, didn't allow her to speak publicly again when he, when she contradicted him on the crisis. So, anyway, I we don't need to belabor this point any further, but I'm hopeful, but still cautiously fearful. Well, just to talk about one other country that that's been approaching this a little bit differently in the United Kingdom. While most countries are going for let's close most things down, let's let's implement mass social distancing, the UK has allegedly, according to several articles I've read been going for a herd immunity approach. Now, it sounds like in the last day or two, they've started to shift from going more to go more towards social distancing. But isn't this kind of an insane idea? They were going to go for, let's try to just social distance people that are vulnerable and let's let young people get it as much as possible so we develop immunity early. That's at least my understanding. Is, Is that your understanding? And does this make any sense to you? Certain aspects of their strategy make sense. 
So I don't think this is their strategy, but this is something that I've thought of separately. You guys might think it's crazy, but it would make sense to kind of infect our entire childhood population, uh, people who are children, because they just don't die from this virus. And if you reduce the overall population of people who can get the virus, that's a good thing because it cuts down on the ability of the virus to spread. So if a child already has the virus, they can't get the virus again and they can't spread it around. That's kind of how it would work in theory. Uh, the, the UK's policy uh, with regards to this is completely stupid. It, it's just a terrible idea. I mean, basically what this means is that uh, they're going to get too many cases too fast and then their hospital system is going to get overwhelmed. But because the hospital system is going to get overwhelmed, they could potentially have chaos in their country or, you know, just many more people are going to die than necessary. I think that the best way through this, apologies to the, you know, negative economic effects of this occurring, is to basically just implement pretty strict social distancing. And then when infections of new cases fall, loosen them up. And then if cases start to rise again, re-implement them, re-implement the social distancing. And so you kind of do this over and over again in cycles. So you have a spike of infections, then you have social distancing, then you loosen them up, then you have another spike of infections. Each successive time that you loosen things up, there's greater herd immunity because fewer people have, because more people have been infected with the virus. And the longer you delay things out, the more likely we are to have a vaccine. We can talk about how it's pretty unlikely that we'll have a vaccine fast or much more likely, much more reasonably, we'll actually have a better sense of what protocol health practitioners should be engaging in in order to treat these patients. So we want to delay things and kind of engage in social distancing like every other country that successfully managed to control this has. I, I don't, I, the UK is making a horrible, stupid mistake and they're going to reverse their decision very shortly. I think it really was just a fundamental UK like reflection on World War II and keep calm and carry on and the fact that they were able to, you know, survive the Blitzkrieg and all of that that made them think that, you know, we're going to we're going to take a different stance and we're going to try and be innovative here. Honestly, I think the UK is too big of a country to have tried that. I would be a little bit interested to see, you know, some small test of does um, actively encouraging, you know, the spread of coronavirus among the those that aren't at risk lead to these possible solutions to to save the ones that are at risk. But again, what I was talking about earlier is that we don't know enough about the impact on children. Just because they're not dying does not mean that this isn't hugely impactful on them. Now, if it's true that sixty to eighty percent of people are going to end up getting it regardless, then maybe it makes sense that you do speed that up. But I think. Again, if it's going to overwhelm the system, then clearly it's going to completely fail. It's going to lead to lots of deaths in other areas. So, you know, some small scale test of trying to have herd immunity be encouraged in some way is like an interesting idea for public health, you know, considerations in the future. But I was 
shocked when I heard about it, honestly, especially given how little we know about the the effects of, you know, non-lethal coronavirus. Yeah. I just remember. Sorry, I just want to disclaim something, clarify. Uh, David Short just made an excellent point. We don't know what the long-term effects would be on children. I'm not recommending that right now we do something like that, but maybe at some point in the future when we know more about the disease, if this continues to be a problem, we may want to think about doing things like that if it's done in a controlled, competent way, which our government's not likely to pull off. Well, the other problem is that somebody needs to take care of children. So you have children, you say, okay, we're going to let them get the virus. Well, while they're sick with the virus, grandparents, sometimes parents who have medical problems are the ones who take care of those children. And you can't just, what are we going to do, put them all in a pen or something? Uh, The UK's approach makes zero sense to me. We need to flatten out the curve, as everyone's saying, all over uh, every health official saying, let's flatten the curve, because we don't want to have peak constraints go into effect at our um, healthcare system, right? Okay. I don't think the plan was like just get kids sick. I think it was just get people that are not, um, you know, over 70 with or, you know, compromised in their uh, lung capacity in some other way, people get it more often. So I don't think it was specifically like let's get kids sick approach. It was just a let's get everyone sick other than the elderly and infirm. It turns out that the – Turns out that the solution to the coronavirus that we've all been looking for was just a stiff upper lip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I don't know if anything's funny right now, but that was pretty good. So Czech Republic Thanks. and Thanks, Denmark were, are vibrant Western democracies. Uh, we often hear about China and its draconian measures that's taken to stem the tide successfully of the virus. But Czech Republic and Denmark were really quick to shut all their schools. They were one of the, some of the first countries to go, hey, we're going to shut down all our schools before they even had many cases. And they also were pretty quick on other social measures. So I, I want to give a shout out to Czech Republic and Denmark. I know we have listeners out there from our demographics. Uh, your countries are doing great, it sounds like. Okay. So what have you done personally to prepare? What do you think that um, individuals who are young and healthy should be doing to prepare? How, how should we be approaching this from a personal perspective well we already talked about like you should not be interacting with other people you should be practicing social distancing regardless of whether or not you um have symptoms uh i mean we're starting to get it's starting to get into some complicated medical topics i personally believe that you should absolutely wear a mask anytime you you go out i mean you need to be wearing the mask properly you need to understand how the virus transmits. It's my understanding that it principally moves not so much from like handshakes and then touching your eyes, um, but you know, it, it can certainly transmit in that way. And the solution to that is like, you know, frequent long period hand washing. But uh, yeah, it, it primarily transmits through aerosols. So basically you inhale someone else's breath and then you basically inhale the virus. And so I think that you should be wearing a mask anytime you're in a place with uh, lots of other people. Uh, arguably, you should have stores of food and, uh, you know, the, maybe some alcohol to, to kill the virus. But soap does a pretty good job. Of maybe alcohol for surfaces and stuff like that. Uh, how about you guys? What are you doing? Well, I started stocking up as soon as you kind of sounded the alarm back in January, February, and I was reading a lot about it myself. So I I already was pretty prepared by the time they started implementing measures about a week ago. 
Uh, I did one final food shop of two weeks of food before I went into, and then actually just after that, I started having these cold symptoms. So I, it was lucky I did that because I, I w- went into self-quarantine right after that. Uh, so we're very well stocked on food here. I bought a lot of alcohol bef- like a while ago. Um, so I, I wasn't part of these shortages that are everywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm very well prepared, I would say, from a material perspective. Uh, other than that, I mean, if I wasn't under self-quarantine, I would be stay- taking advantage of my work's option to work from home anyway and staying at home uh, because I just think everyone should be. What about you, David? Yeah, so looking back at my Amazon receipts, apparently I bought some masks, some hand sanitizer, and some alcohol on January 28th. I again think that was thanks to Molson's concern and then my own, you know, subsequent research and recognition that it, you know, isn't that much of an investment that I'm making. I did buy quite a bit of, you know, canned food and then actually just, you know, meat and put it in the freezer to be able to to isolate if necessary. I am unfortunately in a little bit of a weird personal situation of I'm in the in progress of moving from Boston to New York to areas that are essentially hotspots right now. And I think there's a decent chance that that won't work out over the next week, but I'm, I'm hopefully moving all of my stuff. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that means I will not be fully, you know, social, socially isolating. I will have to, to get there. I had originally had, uh, you know, bus tickets and a plane fare. I may end up renting a car instead. I haven't made sort of final decisions on that right now. Um, I will definitely be wearing a mask if I'm doing either of those things. And, Outside of that, just trying to tell other people in my life, especially my parents who my mom has asthma and my both my parents are, you know, in their 70s just to try and, you know, social isolate as much as possible. Okay. So let's talk about some of the disinformation out there. Uh, there's some people that a lot of people in our kind of business books community are probably aware of in the Twitter world that have either been on the right side of this or the wrong side of this. Is there anybody that you particularly want to call out for spreading some disinformation? Is there anybody you want to give some props to in the the Twitter kind of VC kind of business Twitter community? So the Oklahoma governor, I think it was yesterday, posted a picture of him eating in a crowded restaurant and saying, you know, keep keep the economy going or whatever. So definitely want to call him out as being a complete idiot and you know, Oklahoma may not have huge problems just by virtue of its, you know, no one goes there sort of situation. But <laughs> the reality is that you should not be going out to restaurants. You should be staying home. Uh, I already talked about it earlier, but um, Balaji S is the Twitter handle of, I actually don't know his his whole story. I followed him on Twitter for a long time, but um, he was very early in, you know, vocalizing concerns about the coronavirus. So that was definitely, you know, one area where I you know, learned a fair amount and certainly appreciate the insights he's been giving since January. I want to uh, cite two people who are doing a good job and then, uh, or three people who are doing a good job and then a fourth guy who's not. Um, so uh, M. Lipschitz, don't know how to say his name, head of the Harvard or uh, something school. Uh, he's been doing a good job. He's on Twitter. Helen Branswell has been doing a good job on Twitter. And then there's this third guy who I think is really interesting. He recently lost his job as a baker in uh, Seattle, Washington. And his name is Hector Torres. And um, he he was like the first person to break the news on what was happening in Iran. And he was just like, you know, back when 
we thought that like China was under control and that there weren't going to be any problems outside of China or that we thought that, you know, it was just a China problem. He was like posting crazy videos from Iran and uh, I thought he was doing an amazing job. And I, I just like shout out to him. He actually lost his job as a baker because the, he's in Seattle and the bakery has now has to close. So Hector Torres, if anyone should be kind of, you throw that dude some respect. Um, the the person who I want to call out for, for just being a- absolutely comically terrible is Tim Draper. He's a venture capitalist, uh, I think, in Silicon Valley. And he's famous for being uh, one half of the Draper Jurvetson um, venture capital firm. And he's also famous for being like a reticent supporter of Elizabeth Holmes. And he, he was a big investor in Theranos. And he tweeted out, the fear is far worse than the virus. The governments have it wrong. Stay open for business. If not, so many more people will die from a crashing economy than from this virus. Hashtag Corona, hashtag Dust Bowl, hashtag food, hashtag clothing, hashtag shelter. Um, that guy is an idiot. I mean, you know, maybe he's not an idiot. He just has some pretty obvious blind thoughts, uh, blind spots with regards to the coronavirus and Theranos. But yeah, Tim Draper, uh, I don't know, man. Go home, you're drunk. It is Draper Fisher Jurvetson, I believe. Just oh, to, so uh, one third, not one half. My bad. Okay. And Jurvetson went to my high school, actually. Oh. Good for you. Okay, so how has the uh, private sector been contributing to mitigate the spread of the disease? Is there's been some things that you've been seeing that have been quite positive, or are you disappointed with the business community? Um, so I, I'm I'm not sure if this is a positive or, or on on the one hand this is a positive, on the other hand it's a negative. Um, I'm in a Facebook group with oh, 300 other like large Amazon sellers. And you would be blown away by how often people come into that group and they're like, hey, you know, in touch with this hospital, this hospital needs 50,000 N95 masks. Who can hook me up? And then like 11 other people in the Facebook group will be like, I got you, I got you, I got you. So there's this like, I don't want to call it a black market. It's not a black market. It's just like there's an entire market place on Facebook of like brokers. And I know this other guy, he made $6,000 on his first deal. He's just taking like, two, three percent of these very large deals that are going on. He's basically brokering them. He made seven thousand dollars on on his more than that on the next deal. And he's he's got like a hundred thousand unit and ninety-five deal in the works and this that. It's just crazy to think that the, the private market is actually kind of like coming up with some solutions to where our our, our governments have failed. And I I mean we went from basically, you know, uh telling all of our suppliers in China to, you know, you know, Hey, do you need masks? How can we help you in any way to like three, four weeks later? They're like, Hey, you need some masks. We'll send you some masks. I I got the supply under control and these ventilators. Um, So it's just been crazy to see that. I would call out Adam Silver and the NBA as well. I honestly think that the NBA shutting down was the thing that sort of turned the tide for mm-hmm. Americans actually recognizing this is a real problem. Maybe that plus Tom Hanks. Uh, so, you know, two famous people having coronavirus, I think, was what made people realize that basically we're being lied to on the, <laughs> the level of spread because we haven't been testing people. Because if, you know, those two people who I know of have it, then clearly the thousands of cases we've said we have are not right. Mm-hmm. I think the private sector has been doing a way better job than the government in the early days of the crisis. Government, I think, hopefully is turning around now. But 
I'll just point out a few things. So the testing companies, Quest LabCorp, as soon as CDC said they could develop tests, they had one out in a couple of days. Um, the, the tech companies are really getting the word out. They're, they're de-spreading misinformation and they're instead spreading correct like hygiene and uh, facts about the virus through all of their platforms. So I think that's great. And they also told all their workers to work from home. And a lot of companies have done that. So that's really impressive that companies are like like the NBA and uh, a lot of other sports leagues, Broadway, they're putting public health before profits. Surprising, right? But they're actually going and closing events before the government had told them you have to close these events. And they said, hey, we're going to actually close them. Maybe it makes them look good. Maybe in the long run, it's going to be much better for them. But whatever the reason, a lot of p- private sector companies took more adequate precautions than governments did and did that before there were any kind of government mandates. And I think that's pretty impressive. And there's also a lot of free stuff coming out too. So I work in education. A lot of the textbook companies, a lot of the um, online learning platforms are giving schools, professors, teachers, free resources, letting them use their platforms, letting them use their resources for free throughout the, the next couple months. Of course, a lot of us might end up becoming long-term customers of them, so they have an incentive to do it, absolutely. But they were very active about doing it. Another thing positive I want to point out is that a lot of private sector companies have been very good about communicating with their customers. Uh, All of us have been getting a million emails. This is what we're doing about coronavirus. And some of them actually do feel reassuring. Like I'll give you an example. My supermarket chain uh, sent, sent me out an email saying, hey, here's how we're cleaning all the stores every day. Here's how we're ensuring that we're going to have enough workers there. Um, here's how we're going to compensate workers who get sick. Uh, they did that like a week ago before everything got into a frenzy. And so I, I'm really impressed with how the private sector has been responding to the crisis. And I hope this will reinforce people's confidence in capitalism at a time when we don't have a lot of confidence in capitalism as a society. What do you think, though, about the long-term economic effects of this crisis? So are we going to be in a recession? I think it's almost a given, right? But how bad is the recession going to be? Is it too early to tell? What sectors are going to do well? What sectors are not going to do well? This is like an impossible question to answer. And most likely all of us will be wrong in ways that we couldn't have even expected. It's really hard to predict macro. Um, I think that we are most likely, with that said, I think that we're going to be in a prolonged demand shock for certain types of industries. So I, I think that the cruise industry has a very tough year, if not longer, ahead of it. Uh, Cruises, co-working, restaurants, uh, any kind of entertainment that happens outside of the home, travel, hotels, Uber, taxi, there are all sorts of industries that are going to be bars. um, And then all sorts of industries are going to be harmed by this. And then it's important to remember that every single industry has suppliers. So in the case of bars, you know, alcohol sales are likely going to go down unless people are just drinking tons solo. I mean, there are going to be fewer gatherings where alcohol is going to be drunk. Each one of these industries, they have suppliers, they have lenders, they have employees. And so there's kind of, there's really the potential for financial contagion that begins with uh, the demand shock that is caused by social distancing. But I guess just as a society, we just need to make a choice. I mean, do we want tons of people to die because we overwhelm our hospitals? Or do we want to practice social distancing at the risk of um, the weaker players in these industries uh, potentially going bust? 
I think Molson said it very well. I certainly do not expect that I know what's going on. I have been playing the market a little bit, but I'm sure I'll end up, you know, losing my shirt on it. I didn't put, you know, more money than I can lose on any of the the bets that I've made, but, you know, had a couple of opportunistic buys on banks and uh, other areas of the economy that I had on my list of stocks I wanted to buy before. And when they dropped 15%, I went ahead and made some purchases. Those are all things that I plan on holding for the long term, except for AMC, which I will probably sell now that I had a completely nightmarish experience trying to uh, drop the uh, monthly subscription that I had with them, where I I actually think they're basically, I don't know, I I filed an FTC complaint about it, given how terrible it was, but it's basically impossible to to quit the A-list membership at this point. I literally spent an hour on the phone, an hour waiting for an online chat. I finally got on the phone with someone and she hung up on me when I said I wanted to cancel. So... Anyway, that might actually be good for AMC not going bankrupt very quickly. If, if it's impossible for people to stop paying them for some of their subscriptions, then maybe they'll hold on to some of their revenue a little bit longer than they would have otherwise. We save AMC. <laughs> I, the film industry, I think, will be actually really interesting to watch because uh, there has been some news where they're you know delaying releases of movies and things like that. But will they shift to just like a pure digital model? Um, I did buy some Disney as well, which I think. I've made a little bit of money on the shares I purchased recently. I'd bought some before, which are still underwater. So I think overall I'm still net down on Disney, but um, you know, long-term I think um, per another podcast that we have recorded, but not yet released, I am long-term bullish on the content properties that Disney owns. But um, that being said, certainly a recession. I, I think there's no doubt about that. We will have, you know, two quarters of negative GDP growth. I think the, Long-term impacts are really, it's just really impossible to say at this point because we're just kind of too early on to see it. But I think the reality is that until we have either a, you know, therapy that's highly effective or a um, vaccine that, you know, social distancing should be you know, continuing for an extended period of time. You know, schools right now are saying they're shutting down for two weeks or a month or something, but I think that's very unlikely that that's going to be the case unless, you know some magical cure comes around much quickly, much more quickly than I think could, could realistically happen. I do think this is going to accelerate some trends. So remote working, obviously, I think is going to be accelerated by this. You have so many people right now, like myself included, who are being allowed to remote work right now. And I think a lot of those people are going to realize, hey, you know, this is pretty good. And some of the business are going to say, hey, you know, this isn't that bad either. And maybe people are actually in some ways more productive in certain industries. Probably not right now because everyone's so nervous and so anxious. We're probably not all being the most productive, but I think a lot of people are in general are going to realize remote working is viable. And I think this is going to accelerate that trend. And I think along with remote working kind of goes hand in hand, more contract work, more freelance work. And so we've seen a trend towards people being independent contractors the last few years. I think that's going to continue, which is why I actually bought stock in Upwork during the crisis, because I I just think that's obvious. I I think obviously we've seen the trend the last few years going towards more freelance jobs, going towards more um, remote work jobs. And this is only going to accelerate that. This is like gasoline on the fire. Kopech, given that you're working in a university how has or college, how has that been impacted by the uh, coronavirus so far? Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting because a lot of colleges were one of the first 
elements of society to close, right? So what they did at our college is they gave us an extra week of spring break, mainly for the students. We're actually going to have meetings this week as faculty. We were on spring break last week. And during spring break, they're like, hey, take another week of spring break. And then after that, don't come back. They said to the students, they said, if you can stay home, if you have economic hardship, they're letting the students come back in case they have no other place to go. But if you don't have economic hardship, please stay home. Um, Our college is actually reimbursing tuition, uh, not, excuse me, not tuition, (laughs) room and board prorated for for the rest of the semester for for most people. Um, We're going to continue having class though. So we're, we're definitely about finishing the semester and we're already two thirds of the way through the semester. We have about six weeks left. And when we come back, we're going to do online classes. And that's going to look different for different types of classes. What I plan to do for my computer science classes is I'll be teaching through Google Hangouts Meet. Um, and so students will be attending discussion classes, lectures, code demos, labs, just like they would in person, except for it'll all be through Google Hangouts Meet. And I appreciate that Google's actually extended some of their uh, premium services to educators during this time. So thank you, Google, for doing that. And we're still going to have the same homeworks. We're, we're going to have the same tests. They're just going to be online. Um, it's just it's going to be interesting because uh, I personally have never taught an online class. So it's going to get a, I'm getting a boot camp right now and learning how to do it. And it's nice. The school gave us another week to prepare. And we are, I'm making some modifications. Like, for example, group assignments are becoming individual assignments for one of my classes. And I'm finding ways to change the deadlines a little bit, given this extra week of no school that we're having. So there's some modifications I'm making, but essentially school goes on just in a virtual environment. Why do you think the group assignments need to be changed? I mean, they could still, just to clarify, it is just Google Meet. Google Hangouts is a separate product. Google Meet is the new product that I think they sell mostly to corporations, but maybe they're giving away to educators right now. But um, why, why can't the group project be done over Google Meet? So the terminology from Google is terrible. You go to the website meet.google.com, but if you create a new calendar invite to other people, it's called Google Hangouts Meet. Google it. Google Google Hangouts Meet. You'll see what I mean. Um, anyway, uh, why does it have to be an individual project? So one of the classes I teach, I do this thing where you have a partner, a different partner, randomly selected every week on each assignment. And one of the reasons for that is to to build that teamwork skill set, right? So people actually get together in the lab, they sit down next to each other. They do sometimes what's called extreme programming, which is kind of like where one person's at the keyboard and the other person's over their shoulder, kind of a two heads is better than one sort of thing. And obviously when we're not all in the same physical location, you can't really do that. Now, is it possible to still coordinate? Yeah, it's possible to still coordinate online. Um, There are tools for that. It is not as good for some people as being able to sit down next to somebody else and and do this kind of extreme programming. So for that particular class, I'm moving from from paired assignments to individual assignments for the rest of the semester. Maybe that's a startup idea because I actually had um, made the same note that I think that for engineers, the working remotely or software engineers specifically, the working remotely thing in general is probably okay. In some ways they might be better off in that they can be, you know, isolated and not distracted by what's going on in the office. But in my experience, my engineers did get a lot of value out of just talking to the person sitting next to them about some problem that they were confronting, not quite to the extreme of the extreme programming that you were just talking about. We actually did have a pair programming station nearby where two people could be, you know, looking at one screen and each have, you know, keyboard and whatnot to be able to, to interact with the code. And I, I think that is not, 
I mean, I'm sure there is software that's trying to to handle that right now, but it's certainly not something that Slack or, um, you know, uh, what's the Microsoft version of it. But anyway, that those, you know, current softwares for sharing remotely are really set up to handle. So I, I do think there's, there's some opportunity there maybe. Well, there are definitely tools for pair programming online, but I, you know, do I want to make the students learn that in the next week before we start up again? Uh, probably not. And people, I, so I just thought it would be easier, frankly, to, to go to individual assignments for the rest of the semester and, and cause less consternation on the, on the part of the students. But, you know, uh, maybe it would have been a good learning experience to use a tool like that online. Um, I don't know. I guess I could see it both ways. My uh, girlfriend's mom is a principal of a a Catholic school on Long Island. And so I was out there earlier today and she uh, was dealing with the fact that she heard that the uh, Suffolk County schools were shut down by, I don't know who it was exactly, the superintendent, and that that applied to both public and private but then the you know Catholic diocese hadn't made a decision because Norfolk wasn't shut down yet. It's it's been very interesting and, and complicated. And e- even today, I saw Governor Cuomo on the news saying that he wasn't going to shut down schools because it's too complicated because nurses and you know people who work at the power plant or whatever need to be able to ha- you know send their kids off to school so they can do their their critical jobs. And then you know later today, he did shut down all the schools and just assigned the schools to be responsible for figuring out child care and food for, you know, there, I guess there are, you know, many homeless children in New York as well, where uh, the only food that they're getting is through the schools. So, you know, obviously there are a lot of concerns about, about shutting down schools, but it seems like it's a lot easier to deal with child care for the, you know, relatively limited number of people who are incapable of working from home or, you know, being able to take some time off in order to care for their children versus the, you know, extreme, problems of hundreds to thousands of children being in, you know, one centralized location where they can very easily spread disease to each other. So like with the NBA, I think we saw kind of some symbolic players lead to a lot of other places making these decisions. So in the case of colleges and universities, Harvard, Amherst were really early on on closing down their campuses. And then in Vermont, in particular Middlebury, which is probably the it or UVM are the most well-known colleges in, in, from Vermont was one of the first schools also to close down everything. And that led to other Vermont colleges closing down. So again, props to them for being leaders and and taking action swiftly and decisively that led to everyone else taking that action. I will say with the New York schools thing, I have a relative who's a player, let's say in the teachers union in New York city, and they really wanted New York city to close down the schools and Bill de Blasio was so against it. And he was really fighting tooth and nail to not close down the schools, Bill de Blasio, even when a lot of students stopped showing up last week. At the end of last week, attendance was way down. The union was against having the schools uh, be open. And yet he was still fighting it, which is insane when New York City is a hotspot for coronavirus. It's not totally insane, though. I mean, there's some logic to it. Like there are legitimately like a bunch of kids whose first meal comes from. Oh, yeah. Being at school and then also like medical workers, if it's like single mothers who are nurses. Absolutely. So he should have been spending all that ridiculous, stubborn energy figuring out how to solve those two problems instead of fighting tooth and nail to keep the schools open. 
I mean, those I, problems I didn't agree with that you. at all. What they did was they shut it down and they told the schools they're responsible for figuring that out in the next 24 hours, which is just crazy. They waited a week or two to shut the schools down. And then their answer was the schools have 24 hours to figure out how they're going to feed these kids and, you know, care for the uh, children of medical workers. Right. Bill de Blasio's response to the New York City school system is a disgrace and he should be disgusted with himself. Sorry, was that a little too extreme? Okay. No, nah, it wasn't. Let's just keep rolling, baby. <laughs> right. So um, speaking about the the positive sides of capitalism we, earlier, we, we also neglected to mention some of the negative things that have been happening in, in the economy as a result of this on an individual level. So uh, we've seen some examples of price gouging. Uh, we've also seen some examples of hoarding. How can the business community alleviate these these issues? What have they been doing so far? what the business community presumably is the community that is well that is you know engaging in the hoarding i mean i guess like target and walmart might want to restrict the number of masks per customer and stuff like that but one thing that for those people who are interested in how to tackle the virus might want to check out is uh what basically taiwan did so they did some interesting things um I read a news story about a manufacturer of masks. I think the only manufacturer left in the United States that makes such masks. And in 2009, 2010, they expanded their production lines tremendously because of the swine flu pandemic. Actually, it was a pandemic. It just wasn't that fatal. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, and they did that. And then uh, basically demand for masks went way down and they almost went bankrupt as a result. So, uh, so there's some serious downside to expanding your production if you want to make more masks. Uh, what Taiwan did is they came in and they did two things. There are a bunch of mask manufacturers in Taiwan. The first thing that they did is they said, we're going to provide you with money to expand production. And then the second thing they did is they said, we were going to guarantee the purchase at a set price of all the masks that you produce. And then they like basically distributed the masks out, restricted the number of masks per customer. Um, you know that that's uh, reliant on having competent government. But I thought it was kind of interesting to see how uh, that kind of public-private partnership seems to have worked. I'm not totally sure I believe Taiwan's numbers, but they seem to uh, be doing a pretty good job at containing the virus. Well, I, I do think that the business community has a play a. a- position to play in limiting hoarding and price gouging. You mentioned limiting the amount that each customer can buy. I've seen a lot of companies do that already, so that's great. I also eBay and Amazon stopped allowing people to sell uh, some of the critical supplies that are, that are short right now, like sanitizers and masks. So I think that was a good move on their part as well. So I uh, appreciate that um, when government can't react quickly enough, sometimes large corporations have actually stepped in in the last couple of weeks. The libertarian in me thinks that price gouging is actually a method for efficient allocation of limited resources, but I'm sure that I'm going to get harangued for that. But luckily, it's the end of the podcast. Not by me, man. I kind of agree with you. I mean, you know, if you have competent government, maybe that's the best way to pull this off. But when you don't have competent government, let people gouge the prices. It encourages people to get more supply, and then that supply brings the prices down. Uh, I think it's a pretty effective way to do it. I mean, that kind of makes sense from a um, theoretical perspective. 
But uh, when you see things like the guy who bought tens of thousands of dollars of hand sanitizer has it in his garage and then now the eBay and Amazon won't allow him to sell it anymore. So now he's basically just wasting all these resources in his garage. You, you think, okay, maybe we need some controls in place. Luckily, the government came in and stole all his stuff. It was so stupid. What they, I, I, That's actually what happened. Copa, no, I, 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 see it. I the, saw uh, it. The yeah. state attorney general uh, invaded his, uh, his locker and took all of the hand sanitizer and donated it to a church. Apparently, he had said he was, you know, potentially going to donate it at that point anyway, and was like a little bit cooperative because, you know, he, he knew he wasn't going to make any money at that point. Who needs social distancing, closing of schools, distribution of masks when you can just have the attorney general come in and, and literally seize a couple of cases of hand sanitizer from a storage unit? I mean, like, that's what our government's focusing on. Ridiculous. Molson, how has this crisis affected your business? Uh, so we had some some pretty serious supply disruptions. Uh, one of our factories, um, it's not based in Hubei, but the boss and all the workers are from Hubei. And as a result, they just only were able to restart production. Again, the factory is not in Hubei and the boss is still stuck in the Wuhan area. Uh, we've had difficulties getting inspectors into towns because they don't want to let someone who's not from that town into the town. And that's been challenging. But, you know, China's <laughs> it's, it's hard to come between like a Chinese factory boss and like orders and money and stuff like that. They're pretty good at that type of thing. So they're chugging along. And uh, on the demand side, that was the supply chain or the supply side. Um, we've seen actually an increase in the demand for our products. But quite frankly, that's just because we're lucky. Uh, we sell products that are used indoors and we're an e-commerce company. So we're pretty up until this point, we're pretty un- until consumer confidence takes a, takes a hit. We should be in a good position to do well. We're doing way better this year on the same products than we were doing last year. So people probably need more toys for their kids when they're stuck inside too. I mean, it, yeah. it might, be a little bit helpful. It's uh, almost you know, unfortunately, like, obviously, it's not where you want to grow, but I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> right, there are some I have one kind of funny. Uh, well, I don't know. Funny is the right word, given how you know horrible this whole crisis is. But story: my sister has a, a close friend who had just gotten married to a woman from Wuhan. And so they got married, and they were in Hong Kong awaiting. Uh, her visa to be able to return to the United States. And then things got a little bit crazy with the protests and everything in Hong Kong. And so they went back to Wuhan slightly before. And so they have been living in a one bedroom apartment with her parents for two months now since the, you know, shutdown in Hubei and, you know, they're fine. They're not, no one's sick. No, it's not a problem, but it's, you know, he's, he's a fairly successful, you know, American executive with all kinds of, you know, connections and whatnot. But, you know, when the Chinese government says you're quarantined, you're quarantined. That's an interesting story. Okay. So, you know, one thing that's been interesting also is the industries that this has actually been good for, right? You mentioned just a minute ago, the toy industry, and I guess we'll see if, it, if it's actually good for the toy industry. My book has been selling really well uh, the last couple weeks. I wonder if more people are reading right now. I assume that a lot of the streaming services are going to do really, really well. 
I think that, um, so, of course, cleaning companies are going to do really well. And the medical industry itself is going to obviously do very well and make a lot of profits on all of this probably. So there are some industries where you know you can predict very clearly that they're going to do quite well as a result of this crisis. Okay. Uh, is there anything we didn't cover about coronavirus that either of you want to express to our listeners? While the data can't always be trusted, I think that America needs to swallow its pride and learn as much as it can from the countries that have already gone through this, and particularly the countries that have not only gone through it, but have somewhat managed to contain it. So there's a tremendous amount there for us to learn from China. And uh, I spent uh, earlier today and a little bit of last night reading all these Chinese studies. And there was a fantastic YouTube video that kind of uh, had three Chinese doctors, one in Shanghai, two in Hubei, describe what they were doing in order to manage uh, their patients. And that was uh, pretty fantastic. And uh, so uh, there's, there's some interesting stuff out there about this malaria drug that we've been using since 1934 called chloroquine and these AIDS drugs potentially being uh, somewhat effective antivirals against the coronavirus. And that's the kind of stuff that we should be um, really learning from. But again, America really needs to swallow its pride and learn as much as it can from foreign countries in this really trying time. And I think both Molson and I listened to a Joe Rogan podcast with Michael Osterholm, the director I listened to of that the too. center. Oh, great. All of us did. <laughs> the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and I'm also currently reading his book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, um, by both Michael Osterholm and Mark Olshecker. So um, there are definitely some some great experts on the topic who have already written a lot about it. And actually, I, I was just reading a section of the book where he was literally talking about how you know, SARS and MERS were likely still going on and that a coronavirus epidemic coming out of China was a significant risk that the world should be focusing on. And he'd written that book, I don't know, two or three years ago. So he's certainly been sounding this horn for probably, you know, even decades before that. But um, there are a lot of things that the experts can offer. Yeah. And we'll put uh, links to those in our show notes so that people can learn more about the virus and about what they can do. I, I just want to say to you know anybody who cares what I have to say, please stay home. If you can stay home, please stay home. I mean, if you have a job where you have to go to work and you can't work from home, of course, go to work. But if you have the ability to work from home, please stay home. And if you're a young person and you're being an idiot and you're still going out to bars and restaurants, then you could literally have an older person's you know, life in your hands and you should also not be doing that. So, you know. Anyway, just uh, to give one last shout out to those who are doing a good job rather than a bad job, I will say that um, Jay Inserley, the governor of Washington, was yeah. asked how he was going to enforce the, I forget what it was, 100 person you know gatherings being banned. And he said, the way I'm going to enforce it is that you're going to kill your grandparents if you don't do that. So I think that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Is there anything that you want to plug and how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, you can get in touch with me uh, on Twitter, Molson underscore heart. Yeah, nothing I, I want to plug besides uh, the Twitter accounts that I mentioned earlier. Uh, M. Lipschitz, Helen Bradswell is pretty good. And then Hector Torres. And I'm uh, David G. Short on Twitter. 
And I'm at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C on Twitter. I want to thank everyone for listening to this special episode. I want to remind you again that we are not medical experts. We are not doctors. You should take everything we said with a grain of salt, and you should consult your public health authorities for official information about the virus. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks with an episode of our regularly scheduled broadcast about a great business book. Have a great day.